about take control of your business and decide to be your very best as a leader right now. This is Mike Payton with today's episode of the Lead Now podcast. And today I'm super excited to introduce David Ryling. David is the CEO and chairman of Sunrise Banks and the author of the book, FinTech for Good. Under David's leadership, Sunrise Banks has become the first bank in Minnesota to be certified as a Community Development Financial Institution, or CDFI, a certified B Corp, and a member of the Global Alliance of Banking on Values. David advocates for fintech in the community banking sphere and highlights its benefits for customers and businesses within our ever-changing digital landscape. David, thank you for being here. Welcome to the show. Mike, great to be with you today. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, great. So I'd just like to start with you giving a little two-minute history of Sunrise Banks, where you've been, where you are, where you're going. Let the listener understand your organization a little bit. Sure. Hang on, because this isn't probably your traditional banking story, but it really started for me as a teller is where my interest in banking came. And the summer that I was a teller, the bank I was in got robbed twice. And I thought that was super exciting. And, you know, from a teller line perspective, you can see what happens usually in the entire branch. And I thought the president of the bank at that time was an idiot. He just didn't know what was going on. I was quick in that space to say, this is what I want to do. I totally understand this. I love money and I love talking to all these different people and it's just exciting. So there was kind of an aversion basis right there where my mind was and go to college, start a business in college, sell it. I end up actually being a banker in South Central Los Angeles. So this is the bank robbery capital of the world. So my early years in banking defined by bank robberies, as a matter of fact, the the first two weeks, I, I was a trainee at a bank called First Interstate Bank. The bank got robbed three times. And so wow. I just thought this was the normal course of business for banks. I go on. I had a great experience in Los Angeles in the urban core in South Central. Learned a lot about gangs and crime and cops and, and how to navigate an urban core. And so that was kind of the foundation. Moved back to Minnesota to buy a bank with my father which happened to be in the Frogtown neighborhood of Minneapolis and St. Paul. So an immigrant community, but nowhere near the level of issues of a South Central LA. And while people in this community thought it was dangerous, I was like, this is nothing compared to what I know. So it was really at the very beginning of turning this bank around, which was about to fail, a shared valued proposition. If the community succeeds, the bank will succeed. If the community fails, the bank will fail. And so we were hopeful at the time that even if the bank failed, what we bought it for in the real estate value, we could get part of our money back. So that was kind of the basis of where we're at. So, but it was really this mission, if you will, that it was ingrained in, if, if our community does well, we do well. If they fail, we fail. And so that was really the basis of the mission of the bank. And it so happened that at that time, the Hmong, Southeast Asians, Laotians, were the immigrant group in this Frogtown community. And just so happened that my Italian grandmother was an immigrant, lived in this community. I knew it well. And so I had an empathy, if you will. I had really had an, what I would call an empathy advantage for immigrants. And that was the basis of engaging with them, helping them get access to money, capital, and the financial service system so they could buy houses and cars and businesses and really be successful so the bank could be successful. So again, in that community engagement standpoint, we just innovated one way, shape, or form and partnered with whoever we could 
to share risk and make money available to people that generally would be underserved or left out of that financial system. And we did really well on that. So in essence, we became a Hmong bank. So 35% of our staff were Hmong, about 45% of our clients were Hmong. And again, their success was our success and we just kept growing together. It happened that my father owned two other small community banks in town. He asked me to run those because he saw this kind of success that was happening. And we really, at that time, you mentioned a certification called that CDFI, that Community Development Financial Institution. That's really where that started to solidify. And we really started to be unique in our business proposition in the Twin Cities because we were the only bank ever to have that certification. And we still kind of hold that today. So now I start running multiple banks. We put this mission in place of really it's a do well, do good mission. And the banks start growing. I'm running three separate chartered banks and two separate holding companies. Eventually, we merge it all together to one holding company and one national bank charter. The bank today is about a billion foreign total assets, starting with the one bank at about 14 million on a good day. And so it's really interesting how the bank has evolved. We really used our local marketplace as kind of the incubator and innovator for different ways for people to get access to the financial services system. So today, Sunrise really has two business models. One you might think of from a traditional community bank. We have six branches and a headquarters building, and we focus in on small business for jobs, affordable housing. We bank a lot of nonprofits because of the values and mission alignment. But we also have a production office in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, which houses our national products and our fintech business. And so this is really partnering with financial technology companies who have some type of good in them, meaning they're going to help people build their savings, build their credit history, stay at a payday lending, get access to loans for the first time. But these businesses are really scale businesses. They're national in scope. In some cases, they're international. And as we start to see more and more technology companies cross-border. And so that business, while the mission remains the same in both, that's a highly scalable business, a very intense one in terms of the technical skills that are needed, but also It's the mission consistency at the end of the day, both in our place-based local business, as well as the people business on a national. That's kind of our true north, if you will. Got it. What a story. And it started with you finding getting robbed at the bank you were a teller at being exciting. Exactly. Very (laughs) interesting story. You know, one of the things I've come to understand about you is your mission isn't for the mission's sake, that you recognize a parallel as a leader between having a strong mission and achieving business results. Talk about how you develop that mindset and what you've learned. Yeah, you know, that mindset maybe comes from a very authentic place as to who I am. And maybe if there's a discovery of myself over time, maybe it's Socrates and and know thyself. And so I've always had this curiosity of really understanding myself better. And from my mindset, I always thought if you consider your customer, treating your customer well and with respect, as well as your employees and your community, I really looked at a business as a component of a citizen of a community. And again, the better the citizen, the better the community. And it's really in that framework, I think of doing well and doing good was just, I don't know if it's ingrained in my head. And I think it has some roots, quite frankly, in in my father and upbringing but I just thought it was the best way to do business. And it was a very successful way to do business. So if I had to give you more or maybe uh, analytical 
listeners a way to think about this. A lot of businesses think of their mission as a negative to the actual margin of the business, the profitability. So it's a mission minus, you know, it, it's a minus sign between the mission and margin. And then really the corporate philosophy of corporate social responsibility. In a lot of cases, what you find there is that a business has its core business. It does what it does. And on the side, they kind of do this good as an afterthought. It's kind of a, this plus the mission a little bit is going to be a formula. And you see a lot of greenwashing in that, that we're the greenest or the most social or whatever it may be. Almost um, as a necessary evil of exactly. the price of having to run a business, right? Precisely. It's a cost. Sunrise, the mission multiplies the margin. The more good we do, the more business we get, the more, more partnerships we attract, the more opportunities come to us. There's just got to be some universal law that the more good you do, it comes back to you. And sometimes it takes a bit of courage or faith that that's going to happen, but it happens to us all the time. And so it's in that business framework that our mission really drives the money, the business, the profitability. Yeah, it's interesting, David. You take us back to the early days where it was so crystal clear to you that if the Hmong community failed that had been underserved for many, many years, your bank would fail. And it feels to me like that's where this connection was strengthened, if not formed, that the clarity that your business depended on the success of the people you were serving. How did that develop? How does it inform the decisions you and your team make every day? And how would other leaders be more in tune to that reality? Because as you say, in many organizations, it doesn't feel like they are. Yeah, it's interesting. Again, I talked about that little bit of an empathy advantage. And I think that advantage came out with spending time with my Italian grandmother I mean, I played stickball in this neighborhood with the kids who were immigrants at the time and we're just low income kids and we're just kids. Right. So we have literally not a baseball bat, but a stick and a tennis ball. And that's what we're playing. But we're just kids playing. And I don't know, I think it was in that space that I got to just understand the fabric of, you know, who their parents were and what the neighborhood was like. Besides, I think it just made me a little tougher. I would say I'm the youngest of fours. So my parents were a little more moderate income at this time. My dad had owned his own business, his own real estate company. And so they would pick on me a bit as being an outsider and a rich kid and so forth. But it was that engagement and having to kind of earn the respect of those kids at the time. And so, again, these were just kind of good, hardworking folks. And if you really understood who they were, you knew the financial system, as I had come to know it then, wasn't a place where people of modest means were going to get a fair deal. And I thought that was baloney. I mean, they just were not getting a fair deal. The little guy gets screwed. And so that just kind of pissed me off, to put it bluntly. I just didn't think it was fair. As a matter of fact, at the bottom of the pyramid, what I really saw was there's a huge business opportunity here if you just had some understanding and some empathy of who these people are. They want to repay the loan just as much as the wealthy person does. So I really saw a business opportunity as well as a social opportunity to do well and do good at the same time. And I couldn't think of why you wouldn't want to do that. What a nice thing to do. What a great way to be successful. Cool. You know, I'll give you one other aspect because this is part of maybe the know thyself piece of it. If you ever read an obituary, I've never read an obituary that said, oh, he was a great guy. He was a billionaire, period. Right? Never. It never comes up if you go to a funeral Oh, he was super wealthy. No, <laughs> loved his kids. He was good to the community. You know, he was a wonderful person. Might have been wealthy. It never comes up. So 
is money the true test of happiness or the value in life? I think there's more than maximizing shareholder value. Right. I put it in the context for, of my employees that it's a double paycheck. You get a financial paycheck to support your family and everything else, but you get an emotional paycheck to kind of fill right. your soul in that you feel like your work is worthwhile and meaningful. That is a good place to be. Right. And at the same time, I've heard you espouse to your team that the business needs to be successful in order to continue fueling the yeah. continued good work. So talk about that mindset and how do you focus on both business results to drive mission work and mission work driving business results? How does yeah, that work great. for you? Yeah, you know, I get put in this box or stereotype or bias a lot and they're like, well, you're a mission bank, so you don't really perform well. You're kind of the do-gooder. You're kind of wuss and a wimp when it comes to leadership and management. And I'm like, you know, not so much. <laughs> it's really easy, in my opinion, to only think about the shareholder. Things are black and white. How easy is that? If you want to do well and do good, you have to live in the gray. You have to make decisions that aren't perfect. You don't have a clarity of this is the only thing that we report to. And so it's in that space where you can't be a wimp and run a quote unquote social enterprise that's a for-profit. You have got to run a good, solid business metric business ingrained in your mission that's integrated, but and deliver on both sides. You got to deliver on the money side and you got to deliver on the mission side. And so it's harder. It takes more work. It takes more thinking. And it takes a bit more sense of rolling up your sleeves and getting, I'll say, dirty in some cases, but having adult conversations and ethical conversations that don't have clear answers. And so it's in that moment where you got to go, how do we balance it? And in some cases, you make a decision that, you know what, we got to make money on this deal. This is where we got to price it or we can't do it. Or you're like, that's all right. We should just try to break even because the good that happens in this community will benefit so many people. And you can look at value in several different ways. And yeah. so that's the space, but you cannot be a wimp and run a social enterprise that's for profit. You got to be able to do both. Yeah. And I've observed that with your team examining complex issues from every single angle. It does take longer and it does require you to step outside your sort of natural bent and, and think about the other angles to nearly every strategic decision you make. So uh, kudos for leading that effort well. I think we're going to probably come back to great result and having a great purpose in a minute. But I want to go back to the earliest time in your life when you remembered seeing someone lead or seeing leadership capabilities displayed and how that resonated with you and what you learned and what you decided about yourself as a result of that discovery. What's the first person you saw lead in your life? Yeah, that one is pretty clear to me, actually. And it was my father. And I remember the time being a young kid and going into his little office in our house. And my dad had a, a title that he was the king of the slide rule. Now, I'm taking people back in time. They may not know what a slide rule is, but it's this little white ruler where the middle slid out and you could calculate payments. Of course, as a kid, I would take it and I would slide it out and pretend it was a gun or, you know, playing around the room. So I went into his office. I asked him, what are you working on, dad? He said, well, I'm trying to save a building. And I'm like, what, what do you mean save a building? He goes, well, there's this building in downtown St. Paul called the Dorothy Day Center. People go there and get hot meals and they're homeless. And so I was trying to comprehend like what homeless, they don't have a place to live. He goes, no, they live on the street and it was winter. And I'm like looking out his window and it's January and it's freezing. I'm like, geez, that doesn't sound very good. And I'm like, what are you trying to do? And he's like, I'm trying to save the building. 
It's in foreclosure. Now, my dad has a great real estate strategic mind. And so he was figuring out how to buy the building, lease it, sell it back to Dorothy Day in a contract for deed in which they could afford and ultimately have them own the building and save it. Because he knew in the back of his mind, if they lost the building, they would never get the zoning again in which to do it. So again, this is what I find out later. In my kid mind, what he says is I'm trying to save the building so these people can get a hot meal every day. And I'm like, well, why are you doing this? He says, well, you know, some buildings are just buildings, but some buildings stand for something. And so that just stuck with me. It's where I think you find someone who has a set of technical skills, but they're using it for a bigger purpose. And you could just see the joy in his mind in terms of trying to figure this out and putting the leadership together and his, and his buddies together to get enough money to buy it and make this work and make the math work. And so I think it was in that context where I was maybe the first example of for something that's bigger than I am, for someone who's in a worse position, I can help. And I'm doing this because nobody else will. And I have the technical capabilities and the leadership in order to do it. And so that moment to me was like, wow, he is a passion. He's got, there's something here. You can just see the focus and the joy in his mind in, in doing this. That to me, no one said he had to do it, didn't have to, but he did it. So I don't know, in that space where nobody is looking, where yet? That leadership capability, I think that authenticity of integrity is what sticks with me today. Did you set out to be a leader as a result of your closeness with your father? Or did you set out with a purpose and find that leading was necessary along the way? Gosh, you know, I would say the example of my father probably put me in a place where maybe I took it on naturally, but as I look back in my life, whether it's sports teams or other things, I always found myself in a leadership role. I can almost not think of a time that I wasn't. And so it's a place where I'm comfortable with responsibility. The intense moments are great. I like being at bat when it's the ninth inning and there's two outs and the bases are loaded and it's a full count. I want to be the guy. So it. it was maybe in, in that type of energy. And maybe the reason why I like bank robberies is they're exciting. I mean, they're, they're intense moments. And so it's in that space where I feel the calmest and most competent or, or secure in myself. Yeah. So whether your father or somebody else, tell me about the best leader you've ever seen or the qualities of great leaders that you try and emulate. Yeah, you know, the best and worst leader question is always an interesting to me. I think in my assessment of the best leaders, I kind of analyze them and I pick different things out of the leaders. And even the worst leaders have a leadership style. In a lot of cases, I'll go there first to the negative. I find that the worst leaders have one leadership style, nothing else. They're a hammer and everything's a nail. And it doesn't matter the situation or the environment. They're swinging the hammer at the nail. They hit it sometimes. They miss and hit their thumb the other. It's really not a well-developed leadership style. It's, you might be intelligent, but you might lack emotional intelligence or situational intelligence. It's that piece of it where I think leaders really fall down. The best leaders, I would say, are ones in which they can look at the broad spectrum, bring their authentic self to the place. And even in those cases when they said, I'm not the person for this job or this leadership role right now, because 
this is what I see and here's my skill set. You need someone like this. That honesty is where I think real leaders shine. They're authentic in that space. I think other leaders really are ones, especially when it comes to people, they are servant leaders and they're looking to get the best out of their team, which they know in the end, a team is going to accomplish far more than some rugged individual who thinks they're a leader doing it themselves. It might work for a while or to a certain point, but to be able to develop a really good team and coach them, anything is possible. Anything is possible. And so I think it's in that space that I see really good leaders can really lead and inspire people, but do so from a place of authenticity of who they are and knowing what they're good at and what they're not. You sit in a unique position in that because you're so ingrained in community leadership in the communities surrounding your business offices, I think you see people running communities or leading communities and people running businesses play the game of leading all day long. And so talk to us about the similarities or differences you see between a, you know, a politician or an informal community leader and a successful business leader. Are there similarities? Are there differences? What do you see? Wow. That question, I think there's a lot of similarities between really good business leaders and really good community leaders. They're applying their skill sets and their talents just in slightly different ways. I still think there's a component in those leaders that goes back to who they are and authenticity. If they are truly good people with good communicators and can coach and manage people to be their best, whether you're engaging in a community and trying to inspire this community to do something bigger than themselves or running a business with 100 employees in which you need these employees to not only show up every day, but be motivated and accomplish something. While the results of these two are different, it is the same, I think, type of leadership authenticity that needs to be brought to the table. You could be a political or a community leader and your talents might be of listening and empathy and really taking in all this data as an input and coming up with a really unique solution or a combination, much like if you're a business leader, again, listening to the environment in this situation as to, oh, this is a new product or service that might be very profitable or beneficial to a consumer. So again, I think skill sets at their core are very similar, but different whether it's a profit or whether it's some type of community outcome you're looking for. Yeah. Let's talk about the inverse of great leadership for a second. And if you could just rattle off the list of attributes or characteristics or behaviors that you think get leaders in trouble, just so we know the before in the before and after picture. Gosh, I think the in the worst leader standpoint, it's all about them. It doesn't matter what they say now, they change their mind later. The only good deal is a deal that's good for them. And if it changes, they will change without hesitation and without remorse or any feeling of how it impacts anybody else. That type of impact is destructive. And it's destructive to people, it's destructive to businesses, and ultimately I think it's destructive to a success of a business or a community. So I think self-centeredness, lack of ethics, but really almost to a sociopathic type of state. And I've seen this in multiple ways. As a matter of fact, the bank that I talked about that my father and I bought, the gentleman who originally started and owned it is exactly what I'm talking about. He did federal prison time twice. So 
that's the end result of a bad leader and one who only takes himself into account and they will abuse other people in the process. To me, that's the worst. So I hope the listener paid attention there. If you find yourself in federal prison for a second time, you should re-examine your leadership principles. Yeah. Is that a fair? fair? Take a course. Go online. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> Good to know. I want to talk about the past a little bit, and then I want to talk about the future before we wrap up. So one thing I remarked as you were sharing the story of how Sunrise Banks came to be is that you were a banker in... Los Angeles during the Rodney King days. And here you are, a community banker in Minneapolis in the wake of the George Floyd incident. What do you think has changed and what do you think hasn't changed? And how can we, business people who want to do good in the world, have a positive influence on the future based on what you've seen over these last 40 years? Yeah, great question and a bit of a complicated one. So, the Rodney King riots was definitely a very dramatic time for me because I was there. I had never seen a city burn. I had never seen weapons to that degree. Even having had worked in South Central LA, I didn't know the racial rift underneath not having been from Los Angeles between the Koreans and the African Americans, which was part of this underlying problem. I certainly had the window into the police force and seeing behaviors in a police force, some which were I would put them in the hero category and others I would put them in the worst. And so having witnessed both of those, I saw the same thing come out again. And so I had a lot of baggage coming into the civil unrest in in Minneapolis. And so it reminded me that we really didn't make that much progress at all in the time between the two events. It maybe was just festering and building, which I, I think is really the result of why there was so much civil unrest, not just in Minneapolis, but across the country. And so I think it's in those spaces where there's definitely learnings to be had. I, I think the difference this time is it's not localized. The engagement at all levels of not just race, but business, nonprofit, and government there is an opportunity now in which to really look at some systemic problems and issues and address them. What we're finding is with our engagement, not only with community people, but also with large corporate organizations, how can we help? How can we be a part of a solution? Now, again, I think that starts to speak of the best in business and in individuals that I have some skills or talents. Uh, I have talent and treasure that I can use. Who can I partner with to help? And again, I think it's in these partnerships and collaborations in this ability to listen first and then figure out how to collaborate. Mike, if I think there's one thing in today's, particularly in Minneapolis and St. Paul, that's needed more than ever, it's going to be leadership as to how to coordinate all these different people who want to help. We have found that the cities, given the civil unrest, have taken a real hit in that people don't trust them. And so it's coming back to community leaders, businesses, nonprofits, and others, to, and individuals, to fill that leadership and to dive in and really rise up. I think we're going to find some really good, true leaders that find their way out of the ashes and, and take a stand for things, but do so in a way again, that brings people together as opposed to dividing them and and being able to innovate and leverage in new ways. So, gosh, 
when you put a civil unrest on top of a pandemic, sounds kind of crazy, but this crisis that we have, everything is on the table. Every right. different possibility is there. So as crazy as it is, now is a awesome time to think about change and to think about kind of unity and innovation in these different spaces on how, and these are not easy questions. How do we police? You know, you do need a police force, but you need other resources as well. And so how do we best solve these problems? Where are the root causes? Again, I think there's a lot of components here in which are difficult problems that take time. But I think it's as simple as listening first and then telling our story and being not afraid to really engage in uncomfortable questions and answers as to how do we move forward and make progress. Yeah, and a very lovely and important answer to a complex question and also the motivation for starting this podcast, David, if you don't mind my sharing. My belief is that if the individual leadership capabilities of the entrepreneurs and and leadership team members that I've seen do heroic things inside of businesses are not deployed at difficult problems like this, We can't count on government agencies alone or big corporations alone to throw money or yelling at the problem and expect it's going to go away. We all need to step up and do what we can to leverage our own skills and find a way to listen and lead. So well said and grateful to share that message with a larger audience for sure. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with you in in terms leadership is the key. Let's talk about the future of banking and fintech because you're in an industry that is changing at the speed of light. And so help the listener understand where things are going and how the work you're doing is going to help unite people. Yeah. So banking is being completely disrupted. It's being digitized. And so as a result, it is every facet of financial services and not just banking as you think about a checking and savings account, but your insurance, your investment portfolios, et cetera, et cetera. There is a financial technology company today working on every little facet, niche, cranny, corner in which to make a better customer experience, to make it very accessible and convenient and easy to use, and usually at a very fair price. And so when you take an old model like banks, you just got to think of, you go from a blockbuster model where you got to go in to a place and get a physical, you know, tape and bring it home and you get penalized when you don't, it's just archaic. Right. And so obviously Netflix comes in and they started out by sending out DVDs. It was just a slightly better model, but then quickly evolved into the streaming and the digital, they digitized this service and that's what's happening to banks. You're just going to see fewer and fewer branches, but it's not going to mean that there's fewer services. It's just going to be over your phone or your computer. And so, and it's going to be more convenient And the use of data and technology can really help that. So we're really striving to do is, again, when we were talking about the folks that have lesser means, that bottom of the financial pyramid, the digital platform is a great place to, again, make financial services more accessible, more convenient, easier to use and explain. It can be in 14 different languages at the same time. We can explain to you in pictures what it's going to be in real time. And as a result of that, Everyone is better. Our economy is better. More people are participating. They have access to credit. Their credit bureaus can get built or they have an opportunity at least to build their credit histories. And so it's in this space where I think financial services is really going. And if I was to just maybe take it from a different level once, you will find 
much like the Uber effect. So when you take an Uber or Lyft, you just get out of the car and the payment is done. And so there's got to be a bank behind the Ubers or the Lyfts to move the money from your account to their account. So when you think of financial technology and where a bank like Sunrise may sit, we're going to sit in the background. We're either going to move the money, we're going to store your money in terms of deposit, or we're going to lend you some money. Now, that's what a bank does. It's almost utilitarian in terms of electric company, right? Store, move, lend money. There's one more key element to this, and that banking is super regulated. So we have to do compliance to make sure that these financial technology companies, as well as the bank is ultimately responsible for, is meeting all the compliance in those sectors of move, store, and lend money. And so banks are just going to continuously be challenged with new technology and really for the betterment of business and consumer in terms of their ability to access financial services. And so it is exploding. It's an exponential curve. It's not, you know, an incremental one. And so Sunrise is head engaged in that. We're probably one of 25 banks in the country that's really ingrained in, in the development of banking as a service, if you will. Yeah. You didn't expressly say this, but it sounds to me like the ancillary benefit of everything you just described is that you're reducing the number and exclusivity of gatekeepers to services that would benefit everybody. There's less of a red velvet rope outside the club and more of a, here's where you go to get this essential service for moving money, storing money, or borrowing money. Is that a fair summary? Totally fair assessment. Yep. Um, And it all depends on where you are at and what services you need, there will be something that will be custom for you. So mm-hmm. whether you're just starting out and you need a checking or savings account as your first thing, or you need one for your child, there'll be a specific thing for that. If you are trying to do an estate plan that's complicated, there's going to be specific experts and technology that can help you do that as well. Mm, cool. Thank you. Back to leadership for a second. Your greatest leadership success and your biggest or scariest or most challenging leadership decision. Wow, you got to give that to me one more time. So the best. Tell us about the the greatest leadership success you've had. And then let's stop there and I'll ask you the follow-up question. All right, sounds good. So the best leadership moment for me happened last year. And it happened at a funeral of an employee who had cancer. Awesome guy young guy, married, two young kids, dies of colon cancer. In his eulogy, his family mentions me in the eulogy. So maybe my acid test of impacting people's lives positively or showing leadership or compassion or whatever you want to call that. But it was at that moment, if I could have impacted a person that much, that positively, that they would go to an extent to even reference me in that personal moment. To me, that was the height of leadership. That was a result that I think at the end of the day, when you talk about what's your meaning of life, to me, that is a component. And so it was in that space that I think I witnessed the best of my leadership. Thank you for sharing that, David. Flipping the table a little bit, what's the scariest or most challenging leadership moment you've encountered? How'd you deal with it and and how'd it turn out? Yeah. You know, the scariest Mike is 
I have a lot of scary moments as being a leader. <laughs> there are many events that I would consider the bottom of the ninth with two outs and the bases loaded and, you know, three, two counts. It's in those intense moments, as I had mentioned to you, that those are my moments. Those are leadership moments. If there's ever a time that leadership is going to rise to the occasion or fall, it's in those intense moments. And, you know, those usually happen with, with people. They happen maybe negotiating a contract that really it's might be make or break in terms of the business model. A lot of times they show up in relationships and moments that you have to have those adult conversations that are so hard. But I would tell you the most intense moment for me as a leader was I had mentioned we, we consolidated these bank holding companies together. And at the time I owned one of those bank holding companies and I was the majority owner, which is a seat that I want to sit in and I want. It's not, I don't know how else to tell you that. I don't like anything but that. So when I merged the two companies together, my father was the majority owner. And I told him, I said, you know, you would be the only person I would ever be a minority owner with. And even the moment that we do this, I want to be the majority owner. And so I lived in that for a couple of years and I could hardly live with myself because again, the business was really an expression of who I was and my values and where we were going. And it was, it was my baby. It was me. Right. And so the intense moment in the leadership space was I have to ask him to buy a certain amount of his shares to become the majority owner. And if he doesn't agree, then this is done. And the family is going to suffer as a result of this and will be fractured. And so I mentioned I came from an Italian family. Family's really big. <laughs> One half of the family is Italian, which always says, we're getting the family together. And then the German side of the family says, you will be there, right? And so <laughs> that is the world that I grew up in. So fracturing that and fracturing maybe the person that I consider the best leader that I learned from, certainly from a, the very earliest of ages, was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying. But it's in that moment that you go, if we are going to do this. If I see where this business is going to go in terms of doing well and doing good, but at the end of the day, I'm the person who has to make these calls. I cannot share it with anyone. I will take the blessings and curses that come with it. But now is the moment. Wow. Great stuff. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. Absolutely. That, that's scary. I presume he agreed. He did. My dad was fantastic in that. We had a lot of discussions around it, but he and I are very alike. So we are both entrepreneurial minded. The only thing that's different is we can both quickly come to where we're going. We're going to point A, but he is going to go around to the right and I'm going to go around to the left. We get yeah. there in two totally opposite ways, yeah. even though we crystal clear on what the goal is. So yeah. it's in that in between is where we really had some good conversation. All right. Last question. The hope is that listening to this podcast and others like it will make young, middle-aged and older leaders better. And so for those of us who want to become better leaders every single day of our lives, what one piece of advice would you give to the listener to make them better leaders? Yeah, my one piece of advice is you have to know yourself. The more you understand your strengths as well as your weaknesses, and I know that sounds kind of hokey, but really being truthful, what it is, what are you uniquely gifted at? What gives you energy every day? What is that passion sometimes referred to as your unique ability? You're not just excellent at it. You could wake up in the morning and do it all day. At the end of the day, you would have more energy. 
knowing yourself that well and keeping yourself in that space and building a team to help you with everything else around it is, I think, the one space where leaders become authentic and they can say, I need your help. I am not good at that. You are better than I. And you give someone actually a gift by delegating it and putting them into their sweet spot where you can stay in yours. And again, you have to have the courage to say, I don't know it all. I'm not good at this. Or you know what? I really don't want to do this. I need someone who can. And so it's in that place, I think, of honesty and integrity and authenticity that you find yourself as a true leader. But again, that comes with a lot of introspection. And so test it out. Put yourself in difficult situations. See how you react. Be honest with yourself. Don't be afraid to show up in places that seem a little weird. You got to get out there and show up and, and really try. You're going to come back home with your tail between your legs a lot. But that failing forward aspect of it is really the key to learning yourself and what you're really good at and what you like to do and what you don't. Thank you. Couldn't have said it better myself. And ironically, in that gambit, a lot of leaders feel like it's too selfish to focus on their passion and their gift. And I actually feel exactly the opposite way that you're really giving to others when you allow them to augment what it is you were put on the planet to do. So couldn't agree more, couldn't have closed the conversation any better. Before I let you go, David, where can the listener go to find out more about you and Sunrise Banks and FinTech for Good and all the good work you're doing? Yeah, so you can certainly, for Sunrise, you can go to our webpage, www.sunrisebanksplural.com. If you're looking for me, you can just type in David Reiling, R-E-I-L-I-N-G, into LinkedIn. You'll see my profile there or on Twitter, at Reiling David, and that's my handle. Awesome. Thank you again for a fabulous conversation. You've made a lot of people better at what they do. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Great to be with you today. If you're interested in applying what you've learned today in your own business, the five books in the Traction Library can be helpful resources on your journey. You can learn more about those five books and actually order them at a deep discount by visiting eosworldwide.com.